Welcome to Cup of Cubby Blue, your off-season home for Cubs news, updates, and banter. We're the official podcast of Bleed Cubby Blue, which is part of the SB Nation family of team sites. And you can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Bleed Cubby Blue. You can also find us on bleedcubbyblue.com, and we blast every episode and related content from our Twitter at Cup of Cubby Blue. I'm Sarah Sanchez. I write about the Cubs at Bleed Cubby Blue and Baseball Prospectus. Hi, guys. This is Andy Cruz Vanasek, and I am so excited for this episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty excited, too. So uh, as Andy alluded to, we're really excited to welcome a special guest to today's show, Rob Nyer, who has written like more excellent baseball words than just about anyone in existence. You probably know him from his time at ESPN, SB Nation, Fox, one of his many books. We are thrilled that he is joining us today to talk about everything that's going on at winter meetings, plus a little bit about his own podcast, Sabercast, and his time as the commissioner of the West Coast League. So thank you for joining us, Rob. We're excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. All right. I'm just going to go ahead and kick it off with a question for you, Rob, because on your podcast, Sabercast, you always ask your guest their first or favorite, I think you asked their first baseball memory, but I'm going to give you the choice. I want to. I want our listeners to hear your first or favorite baseball memory, whichever one you feel like sharing with us. <laughs> well, my first, I can't. I can't quite dis- discern among two, and neither of them. Well, one of them is actually sort of, I think, relevant to what I do uh, for 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 you know professionally and and. Uh, is relatable. One of them maybe not so much, but I, I have a very clear memory of playing baseball or not baseball, but playing ball in the backyard of uh, across the street when I was either six or seven. Uh, we used a tennis ball and uh, the big goal was to hit it over the fence uh, for all the obvious reasons. And right around that same time, I remember being called in from playing outside to watch Hank Aaron break Babe Ruth's record, which was on national television uh, on a weeknight. If I'm, if memory serves, I could be wrong about that, but but uh, uh, it's something. One of the things like uh, uh, the moon landings, uh, or there's probably something else in, along those lines back in the early '70s or mid '70s that that you were just supposed to see. And I think uh, uh, a lot of us. Um, who don't remember anything about baseball on TV or Major League Baseball when we were small, uh, we do remember that because it was such a big event. Oh, that's incredible. I also love that you were sort of like on the, uh, you know, at the starting point of the home run search, which is another thing we're definitely going to talk about today. Um, That must have been an incredible moment seeing Hank Aaron break the record. What was it like? You know, it's funny. I, I don't, it's at this point, I've seen it so many times since, right? We've all seen that that clip dozens of times that uh, I can't, I can't separate my, my initial viewing. I remember coming inside the house. We, we were actually visiting family friends uh, in a different state. Uh, I do remember that. At least I think I remember it. Um, and uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't my house. It was, it was the other family's house. And uh, we, it's probably what we called the back in, in those days, the family room maybe in the basement. Uh, and uh, I just remember being called, right? You guys, you guys got to come, you guys got to, kids got to come in and see this. And, but my specific memories are, don't really go beyond that because I've, of course, again, seen it a million times since then. And 
Uh, I think if you'd asked me when I was eight or nine years old, hey, do you remember when Hank Aaron hit the home run? I might have said no, because <laughs> when you're a kid, everything's sort of a jumble. But but now, of course, uh, I, I we can all recount the the events and uh, Tom House catching the ball and the in the bullpen and the two fans running onto the field and all, all the rest of it. But uh, I, I just remember that I guess. The the only thing that I can really say for sure is that it, it, it seemed important or the adults wouldn't have made us come in and watch it. Yeah, that is so cool. Um, Andy, that makes me wonder, though. I don't think I know your first baseball memory. I I think I've, sh- I've shared a couple different ones, but I think my most vivid one was when my dad embarrassed me for not going to get Nolan Ryan's autograph at Wrigley Field. <laughs> Um, that was brutal because I had no idea who he was. I think I was maybe seven or eight and my dad kept saying, you know, he's going to be a really big deal someday. You're going to want his autograph, go get it. And I was so, I mean, he was standing by himself right next to the field, just right there. It would have been so easy for me to just run up and and talk to him and ask him for his autograph. And I was just so shy and kind of starstruck. And, you know, it, it was just, it was, I didn't do it. And I, I've not lived that down to this day. My dad still reminds me of that. So yeah, that's, that's my most vivid first baseball memory. Okay. That's awesome. Um, (laughs) So you've got Nolan Ryan, Rob, you've got Hank Aaron. I actually um, was thinking about this on, in the Uber on the way home and my first baseball memory at a ballpark. So not like, you know, little league or playing around in the yard or actually in the living room is where we started at my family. Um, We went to an, Angels game when we were going on a family trip to Disneyland. And it wound up being, I again was like seven years old. Uh, it wound up being the Necro Emery board game. And I had no idea what was going on. I could not figure out why the game was delayed. I kept pestering my mom trying to figure out what happened. But by the time I figured out that there was a concern about the pitcher cheating, I was just like totally fascinated that there could be a, that that was something that happened in baseball that you could have a pitcher who was cheating on the mound and they could get thrown out. It was not something that my mind had ever even considered. So that was wild. All right. So moving on from favorite baseball memories, and I'm sure that this informs your writing to some extent, um, Rob, I, I have to say I'm such a huge fan of your books. And I read Powerball last year when it came out, which if you all have not read Powerball, you should absolutely check it out. It's a great book that covers so many aspects of the game, but it covers it through the lens of a single game. So there's a lot of different jumping off points from a specific game in 2017 between the A's and the Astros. And I I kind of went back to review some of this in preparation for this interview, and I had forgotten that this game was started by new cub Jarrell Cotton, (laughs) which I thought was super cool. Um, And I'd also forgotten that this, I mean, this is an Astros game in 2017. Rob, looking back, have you thought about the sign-stealing scandal in the context of your book? Oh, sure. And I I guess the, the, it's easy to second, it's, we we all second guess ourselves after we write something and go back and look at it and say, wow, why did I write that? What was I thinking? That's so stupid. Rob, (laughs) you're such an idiot. But that's normal. But this is sort of a special case because it become, it's become such a huge story. And it, it didn't even occur to me while I was writing that if the Astros were going to do all of these cutting-edge things, all these other cutting-edge things, well, of course, why wouldn't they come up with some sign-stealing scheme? 
right? I mean, if they're trying to find all these other edges, uh, why would this be any different? It, frankly, the, the thought didn't even cross my mind that I should even raise the, the possibility of the Astros engaging in something. I, I, I'm, I was fortunate that at least I put something in there about sign stealing and technology because I believe it was either earlier that season or, or maybe it was even the season earlier or the previous season uh, that the, the Red Sox got busted for using the, the, the iPhone watch, right? Uh, as yeah. I recall. Uh, so, so I mentioned that in there and I mentioned that, that, that it's sort of a, a general subject that's, that is around and would have to be dealt with. But I made absolutely no connection between sign stealing, the technology, all of it, and the Astros specifically. And in retrospect, obviously, I wish I would have. Uh, I don't know that. I think that's about the most I could have done, given the amount of time that I had and the amount of access I had. And obviously, the fact that for literally years, nobody else had anything on this. Um, I don't think I could have dug up any actual information, but I do wish I had at least maybe been a bit more explicit uh, about it and and maybe sort of offhandedly suggested that uh, you guys might want to check out the Astros next time this comes up. Yeah, totally. I, you know, I thought you were, I thought what you have said um, is great. And I, I couldn't even imagine looking at the Astros in 2017 and thinking that was what was go- going on. But I just was so struck reading that um, introductory chapter where you talk about specifically Springer and how he's managed to turn himself around on an O2 count. <laughs> I was just like, this whole first inning plays out with all these random O2 counts that get in the way anyway. Um, Andy, I don't know. What were you thinking about Powerball? Well, I, I loved it because as I was going through it, you just kind of kept hearing um, more and more either players that had played for the Cubs or that are current Cubs. It was crazy to me because I'm sure you didn't mean for that to happen, obviously, but because obviously they were playing on two different teams then. But I'm like, how convenient that all these players either played for the Cubs or are, you know, have played for the Cubs at some point or playing for the Cubs now that we can, you know, talk about this and actually like, you know, relate to this. So my thought was because when, when you, started talking about the pitcher and the batter in, in this in this particular instance, you didn't give names right away. And then later you tell us it's Gerald Cotton. And I'm like, yes, that is so cool. I've, I've, I know him. <laughs> so um, when you, you talked about him, I kind of felt like I was excited, but at the same time, a little nervous because, you know, obviously he has a little bit of a history with injury. And then, you know, you talk about some of his pitches. So I was kind of excited, but at the same time, I was like, is this somebody that you've seen and in, in things that you've studied and things that you've wrote about, things you've read about that, that can come make a comeback to the majors and, and be a difference maker for somebody like the Chicago Cubs? Well, I think that Cotton is one of hundreds of pitchers who have that sort of potential because he's got a great arm. One of the s- most striking things about baseball now, and, and I do write about this in the book somewhat, so, a, a bit, is, is that that's just not nearly enough anymore. It's not enough to throw 95. Uh, if you threw 95, 20, 25, 30 years ago, you were going to be famous. And it just isn't the case. Uh, I actually was really rooting for Cotton to, to do well. Uh, it's funny, uh, w- when I went to, uh, visit the A's in spring training, 
the next spring, so this would be spring of 2018, um, he he showed up in the clubhouse just for right at the end of the press availability. You only get about an hour when you can get in there and talk to players. And I spoke to a number of players uh, briefly, but I thought I thought informatively had a great conversation with Marcus Simeon, great conversation with Blake Trine and a few others. But uh, Cotton showed up sort of right at the end, and I went over and and. Uh, and 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 asked him if he had a minute and he he just didn't really have time he had to get ready to get out the door or whatever uh but uh he did say to feel free to get in touch with him later so uh i sort of bided my time and at some point um i was able to get him on the phone and he was fantastic this was after he'd been injured uh because he was injured shortly after uh, i met him in the clubhouse uh but he gave me whatever whatever I wanted, 15, 20, 30 minutes on the phone, and and he's quoted somewhat liberally in the book. But you just look at a pitcher like him who has this amazing arm, and yet for the last now three or four years, it's been kind of a struggle, both to stay healthy and uh, maybe more to the point, to avoid giving up home runs. Uh, that's really the trick. It, it doesn't help if you throw 95 and give up 30 home runs in in the season you're going to be in big trouble. And that's that that can be said about a lot of pitchers these days. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the home run surge because I've been spending a lot of time on that today, as I'm sure a lot of people have. MLB released their report on the baseball. I wonder sometimes for a pitcher like Cotton or any pitcher really, or any team trying to build their roster and figure out the best way to compete in such a competitive environment, the how much it affects their ability to do that and to scout effectively when the ball keeps changing. And so for a pitcher like Cotton, who maybe, you know, spent his entire career learning one way, and then all of a sudden there's this anomaly and this spike, right, in how the ball travels for three years in a row, it just seems like that ha- that is a huge X factor for these players, for their longevity, for their ability to effectively compete. And I'm curious what you think um, – how you think that has maybe affected some pitchers who maybe were location guys and now they're finding themselves with pitches that used to be a long fly ball and that ball is traveling 415 feet. It's a great line of inquiry. And I would assume that someone's done a study to show which pitchers would perhaps be most adversely affected. Although I haven't, have not seen that study in a general sense it's always been true that there were baseball talent is not a bell curve. Uh, there are a few players who are at the top and then there's a huge number of players who are sort of in the middle somewhere. And you know, that's why you have a lot of players with three or four or five year careers. And then they're not quite good enough. And there are a lot of players in the, in AAA who aren't quite good enough, who are, who are quite good enough, but just haven't gotten a chance to, to show that they are yet. And most of the pitchers, uh, maybe most is the wrong word, but a significant percentage of pitchers are marginal, essentially. They're just, maybe they're one good, uh, uh, maybe they're one good new pitch away from being a, a an above average or just an average major league pitcher Maybe they're one slight injury from being below average and going back to the minors or having a surgery. And I think that what the 
the inconsistency with the baseballs does is it is it makes it even more difficult to know which of those players should be in the majors and which of them shouldn't be. Uh, and uh, it, it is a zero-sum game. So for every pitcher that is hurt by the baseballs, uh, presumably one is helped because he gets a shot to pitch in the majors. But I, I also think that when you look at the incredible turnover, uh, especially with relief pitchers, but it, with pitchers generally, and pitchers coming up literally being promoted to the majors five, six times in a season for a total of seven or eight days. I mean, that, there's an example that I cite in the book. That's going to happen a little less often, probably with the new pitching rules, but not much less often. It's basically going to going to, going to continue. Um, yeah, we call that it, the Iowa shuttle here. Yes. And, you know, every place has their own shuttle these days. But uh, and you know, some teams use it more often than others. But to some degree, that's done because they want to get pitchers who have are maybe fatigued off the roster and bring up somebody who's fresh. It's also often because a pitcher has just gotten hit hard and the team doesn't trust him anymore. Uh, well, part of the reason for that is because the baseballs are wacky and pitchers are giving up more home runs. And sure, if you give up a three-run homer today and then a, a two-run homer tomorrow or the next day, uh, and your ERA is 19.32, uh, people are going to be frustrated and you're going to, you're going back to the minors. Well, it might not have been your fault. It might've been the baseball it, it, and everything, it just be, everything becomes more difficult. It's harder to pitch. It's harder to evaluate. Yeah. You mentioned something there that I, so two, two stories came to mind as you were talking. Um, one of them is when the baseball, we, we sort of knew the baseballs were different. Everything was weird in 2017. And I remember Justin Verlander in the postseason started throwing a slightly different variation of a breaking pitch. I can't remember if he had a slider and he started throwing a cutter or vice versa. But I remember Eno Saris catching it. And I remember him say, saying in an interview that the ball had just gotten slightly harder to grip. So he tweaked the pitch slightly. And I was fascinated by that because Verlander is clearly one of these like 1% type talents that is able to make that adaptation. But I wondered how many pitchers couldn't make that adaptation. And it reminded me of something that John Lester had said earlier that year, which was just basically, just tell us. Just tell us right. if the ball is different or tell us how so that we can adapt to it and know what we're doing. But it, it is maddening to go out there every single day <laughs> and have this ball that you've thrown your whole life behave differently. And the transparency issue here is really one that I think MLB needs to come to terms with. And I don't know, Rob, I'm curious what you think. Do you think that the report they released today or the report they released in May of 2018 like satisfies that transparency requirement? No, absolutely not. Every official report to some degree is a cover-up, uh, so far anyway. And I think there were, each report has added a piece to the puzzle. And I haven't had a chance to look at the most recent one yet, but my guess is that it will be true of this one as well. But all the pieces have not been revealed yet. And it's possible that all the pieces don't exist. I think that's probably the case. Uh, I, I don't... Most of the things that Major League Baseball does publicly are not... The, the point is not to uh, improve the lives of every American citizen obviously it's not to reveal some sort of truth the point is to cover up is probably not the right word that's a pejorative obviously but uh, the the point is to practice good public and and press relations 
So they will only reveal as much information as they think they need to, to, to paper over whatever the latest controversy is. But they're clearly still not there yet. And it, it's easy for us to say, well, they just need to be more transparent. But we can say that about everything in, in, in public life, everything that affects our lives. And the fact is, because these are businesses, um, they're not going to be transparent, uh, whether it's whether it's uh, uh, Kellogg cereals or the federal government or Major League Baseball. It doesn't matter. They're going to tell us what they think they can get away with telling us. So I don't expect any grand revelation uh, from MLB, no matter whenever they make these announcements. They're going to they're 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 going to hold back whatever information they think think might be controversial, and that they can get away with holding back. Well, along those same lines, too, I know there was some more information released today regarding all 30 teams having their nets extended in 2020. And I know there is a lot of back and forth on this as far as like the the fan experience and, you know, price of tickets to have a certain um, experience when you're sitting that close to the field and blah, blah, blah. We obviously feel very strongly, Sarah and I um, have talked about this throughout the season, that this should have been done a long time ago to prevent um, all the things that had happened this season. What is your take on that and and how long it it took for that to be a whole league deal? I think that it... it, I go back and forth in my own mind. I I think that uh, when you... Talk about safety. It's worth remembering that probably a Major League Baseball stadium is one of the safest places in the world that where you, that you, where you can go, regardless of how far they extend the netting. Um, I would also suggest that we'll never have 100% safety. There will always be dangerous places, even in a baseball stadium. Uh, do I think that extending the netting is a good idea? Of course, for two reasons. One, it's good PR. Uh, ultimately, even if people have to get used to it. And two, you're going to prevent some injuries. And look, it's more dangerous now than it used to be, in part because there are a lot more foul balls, because players, hitters are stronger, pitchers are throwing harder. My guess is, and I have no way of uh, studying this, my guess is that uh, leaving aside the extended netting, my guess is that, that there are significantly more on a percentage basis dangerous foul balls today than there were a few decades ago because of the things I I just mentioned. So it's gotten scarier back there. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, As a fan, I would rather not be sitting behind the netting. It's just, to me, it's at least given the netting that I've been behind in the past, uh, the game is not quite as entertaining when you're behind the netting. Now I understand that the, the, there's the, the current state of the art netting is more transparent than what I grew up with and sat behind for have sat behind for decades, which is great. That's that's a an argument in favor of it. Um, I, I do think that one thing that I have heard uh, is that once you establish this standard in Major League Baseball. It might be. It might necessarily become the standard in minor league baseball, in collegiate summer baseball, in high school baseball, and maybe little league baseball. Who knows? And uh, this might 
not be realistic or it might be, but I've also heard people suggest that this might literally drive some baseball teams or leagues out of business because the municipality, the parks department, whoever it is, can't afford the sixty, eighty, hundred thousand dollars that it's going to cost to install the new netting. So uh, I, I guess I always tend to think of unintended consequences and there might be some significant unintended consequences if we make extending the netting the standard. Having said all that, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It was inevitable as soon as the first team did it. Uh, so at this point, it's about managing the situation and not complaining about it. It's really interesting that you bring up some of the elements that have probably led to more foul ball incidences. And I also think that teams have some responsibility here. And I want to be careful how I say this, because I know that liability and legal responsibility and all of that are different things. And there is literally a baseball rule about getting hurt at a ballpark. Um, But, you know, a bunch of teams made the conscious decision to pull the bullpens off the field, move the fans closer, bring those foul seats in (laughs) so that you're sitting so much closer to the action and they can charge for those seats. But you can, you're charging more for an experience that is a lot more dangerous. And the amount of time it takes a ball to leave the bat of somebody like a Jose Altuve or a Kyle Schwarber and wind up in the much closer stands is, is not long at all. Well, I'll give you another one of those. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because, frankly, that hadn't occurred to me. But here's an, And here's another one. For, for some time, I think this is starting to die out, but for some time, the, the recommendation has always been, well, just pay attention, damn it right? At the same time that we're, we're told that, we're also told, hey, we've got incredibly high-speed Wi-Fi in our ballpark now, so you, can <laughs> right. en- so you can enjoy your full fan experience of looking up everything on your phone. Well, that's one hell of a mixed message. Do you want me to watch the game or watch my phone? It's, <laughs> it's, and right now, what I'm hearing is watch my phone not the game. So I think you're absolutely right. I think it's disingenuous for anyone now in Major League Baseball to suggest that that they don't bear some responsibility if a fan doesn't happen to be watching the game when a foul ball comes screaming toward them. Absolutely. The Cubs don't do a ton of, um, you know, checking at the ballpark and get a giveaway and that type of stuff. But every time I go to a White Sox game, it is like they're asking you to check in every five seconds (laughs) and you can get great stuff from it. I have some awesome White Sox gear, including like a Dio de los Mortes pin that like literally made my day. But I seriously like could the idea of how much I'm on my phone at White Sox games versus Cubs games because of that. And I pay attention. I keep score. (laughs) So Right, and I, I do too. And by the way, it's it's hard to keep score and pay attention to every foul ball as well. So I mean I'm, I'm a, but I, I wouldn't if 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 they invented a device that blocked all cell signals in the ballpark, I would be completely fine with that. But I'm in a I'm in a tiny minority, I realize that. So if we're gonna encourage people to use their phones at baseball games, we can't really expect them to to be watching the game all the time. Just we just can't. And that and that's a, a great argument for 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 more netting. It is totally true that uh there is a small minority of us who would be fine with the baseball park <laughs> being a Wi-Fi free zone. And I think we have all lost the Instagram wars there. Um we're gonna have a lot more with Rob Nyer on the flip side, but first we have to take a quick break for our sponsors. And we're back. Okay, we have a lot more questions and Thankfully, Rob has agreed to stick with us. So um, I kind of want to jump to a related 
conversation here, but more on the labor side of things, talking about, um, you mentioned the minor league parks that might have problems with extended netting and costs. And that reminds me that Major League Baseball is currently trying to close down 42 minor league teams. And really, like, the evilness of that number being 42, which in my opinion is the most sacred number in baseball, like, I just, it really kills me. Um, but that is one of many issues that's going to get wrapped up in this upcoming CBA, labor relations, player relations. What can you tell us that you see about the state of affairs between the Players Union, Minor League Baseball, and Major League Baseball? Well, let's start with the most recent news, which is um, Garrett Cole's contract. Now, I, I, I have very little interest in the actual numbers. I actually find the numbers themselves quite boring because they're, they're meaningless. It means nothing to anyone whether Garrett Cole earns $324 million or $274 million. It, it means nothing to the team that's spending the money. It means nothing to him, at least in a, in a, in a, in a, it means nothing to him in a practic as a practical matter. Uh, I'm sure he is thrilled to be the highest paid player in baseball for, for however long that lasts. Uh, that seems to be something that, that, that players care about, but, but there's not a, a material difference involved. And yet for some reason we tend to obsess over these numbers as if they do mean something. And again, they don't, and I don't, couldn't care less about the, 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 the specific numbers. What is interesting is what the numbers tell us about larger issues. And what his contract tells us is that teams are perfectly happy, at least one team and probably more, to spend huge amounts of money on free agent baseball players right now, which a year ago people were suggesting teams weren't willing to do. Right. Um, I thought it was overblown then. Uh, maybe it wasn't. But whatever was causing that to happen, and I've not seen anybody explain it yet with any authority, it doesn't seem to be the case now. And that, that does bode well, I think, for the labor negotiations that are will be ongoing over the next year, year and a half. So that's sort of the, the big picture thing there. I don't know that the minor league stuff is really tied into the MLB negotiations. I suppose on some level you can tie them together. But historically, major league players have shown approximately zero interest in the minor leagues. Once they get out, they don't want to talk about it anymore. They don't want to be involved with the, the minor league players, the minor league teams. Uh, it's just not an issue. So I think that MLB can pretty much take a free hand, at least if we're talking about the uh, labor negotiations. Now, political uh, and financial considerations and legal considerations are different, but I don't see a, a, a real connection between uh, the labor negotiations and the what, what what's been described as the Houston plan for the minor leagues. Yeah, it really is the Houston plan. I mean, Houston slash their farm system. If if I'm right, I don't remember how many affiliates they cut, but the idea of making that just the rule across Major League Baseball really was shocking to me. And actually, I think the thing that might have been most shocking to uh, to me about this. And apologies to Al. I know we try to avoid politics that bleed cubby blue but the i mean there's bipartisan opposition for the first time in a long time 
to cutting these teams because those teams are everywhere. Those are small town teams in Tennessee and Vermont, um, where I live and where I grew up in Utah, like teams that you would not get to see otherwise. And it, it was shocking to me that that was something that could bring Democrats and Republicans together was the idea that of closing these minor league teams that have meant so much to different communities. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a it, it I guess it, my understanding is that the, the the plan and it's hard to even describe it as a plan because there is some some seems to be some disagreement on whether it was actually the plan or just something that was floated. In fact, Rob Manford just said that the actual number isn't 42. It's some other number, which he wouldn't mention, but uh, the the goal seems clear. And that's to economize and to streamline the minor leagues, Uh, whether it's 42 or 32 or whatever, it's presumably a significant number. Uh, And it's also, it's pretty clear that, this was not how MLB wanted the subject to to land on the public, uh, but there was never any chance. Once once this stuff was was out there floating around, there was never any ch- there wasn't a, any chance that it was going to remain secret. So maybe there was a better way MLB could have handled it. I, I really don't know. Um, you're right about the bipartisan opposition. Uh, it's not clear to me exactly whether that's going to make a big difference. I mean, MLB has basically had Congress in its pocket for quite a while now. We just saw the vote, you know, Save America's Pastime Act, which was one of those preposterous right. uh, titles for a bill last year, the year before, that, that essentially harnessed minor league salaries. Um, uh, and I don't know that there's enough political will, given the, the amount of money that MLB uh, gives to various politicians. I don't know if there's the political will to do anything about this. I think also what we will see if the minors are contracted by a significant number of teams, and I think that's still by no means a sure thing, but I think what we will see MLB say is, look, yes, uh, 36 towns or cities are losing their teams, but don't worry because most of them will have some other team after one year or maybe immediately, whether it's a collegiate summer team or a semi-pro team or an independent minor league team. One thing that, that we find if we look at the history of the game is that if, if a market is good for baseball, there will be a team there uh, before too long. It might take a year. It might take 10 years. But, but baseball rarely disappears from market forever from markets that can support it. So most of these places I would expect will have baseball in one form or another five years from now. So I want to go ahead and shift gears a little bit here because we are in the midst of winter meetings and the stove is on for some teams, I'll say. Um, What is your thoughts on this? Because I feel like in recent years, it's not been this active in December um, as far as like free free agent market and trades and, and all that good stuff. I feel like this year it's moving a little bit faster, a little bit earlier. What is your thought on, on why that is and what's exactly going on with this? Well, again, I think you're absolutely right. It, there does seem to be a, a, a sea change, but I'm not seeing anyone explain it yet. Uh, the only, I have one, I have a crackpot theory. Which is that you are here for crackpot theory. I was going to say you're in the right place. Good because here here's my crackpot theory. Uh, 
my crackpot theory is that last year there was so much negative press regarding the inaction and the relatively, historically speaking, the relatively low or small contracts that were given out to free agents and also the amount of time that it took for top free agents to, to receive uh, offers that were uh, historically commensurate. Um, there was such a huge blowback and it lasted all season. And I think, uh, I think the, the word got around to the teams and I, I, I'm not sure exactly which term, what terminology to use because we're, I'm now straying toward suggesting there's been collusion, which I said there wasn't a year ago. And I, so I'm not going to say that there is collusion now in the opposite direction, but I think it, the message got through to MLB that uh, if if we have another winter like last year's winter, um, you're gonna you're, you're gonna take a lot of heat publicly, and it's going to poison the well for the coming labor negotiations. So uh, I just can't. It's hard for me to figure out, come up with another answer, because the 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 contrast between last winter and this winter to this point at least, has been so stark that I'm just sort of looking around saying, why? What changed? And um, uh, that's the only thing I've been able to come up with. But I mean, I I suspect that ultimately the story will come out, um, maybe not soon, but in five years, somebody will write a book uh, about the secret world of baseball in 2019 and we'll, we'll get all the answers. One of the other developments that happened at winter meetings, and I, and I agree with you that something is going on here, and I'm, I'm not sure what it is. I have like I have my a couple crackpot theories of my own. Um, maybe I'll write about them this this winter. Every time I have an idea like this, Al is like write an article. Um, but one of the things that came out at winter at winter meetings that I'm curious to get your reaction to is the new three batter minimum. And part of the reason that I am real well really interested in this is. I think it probably renders some of the pieces, some of those like left hand only guys, um, a little bit superfluous. And I'm a little concerned what happens in a world where, and I'm not going to name specific names, but I can, I have some Cubs relievers in mind who come in and they just cannot throw strikes to save their life. And all of (laughs) a sudden they've just walked the bases loaded and we just all have to live with that now. Yep. We do. And we should. <laughs> I I mean uh and I come back to this in in the book time and again. Uh we've reached a point in baseball history and really there was never a single moment when this became true. We've been trending toward it for decades, but baseball wasn't wasn't invented to be played this way. It wasn't invented to to to, to be played with five or six or seven pitchers per side in every game. It was, it was really invented for one pitcher per side. And obviously that changed in the early 20th century, basically, and has been changing more and more ever since. But, you know, the, the idea was when it was, it was as a spectator sport, um, it wasn't designed so that we would see a parade of pitching changes. Um, And what I would suggest is that the game should be, as a as a spectator sport should be designed for the benefit for the entertainment of the spectators and yes it is true there will be some players who ultimately won't fit within that model and that's rough 
for them. But again, it is a zero-sum game. For every pitcher who loses a job because he can't retire three straight batters, another pitcher will have that job. Um, so, uh, and, and at the same time, it's a slightly more entertaining game for the fans, I think. So I'm all for the minimums. Uh, I would like to see something even a little more strict, but I think this is a great start. Well, that leads me to a question that I've been dying to ask you, which is what rule change would you be most interested in baseball adopting? Unfortunately, I don't think that one will do it. Um, but the goal should be, I mean, the most overarching goal is the one I just mentioned, which is making the game more entertaining. Um, but within that, there's a slightly more specific goal, which is uh, more batted balls in play. Uh, I want to see, as as Boog Shambi says, um, more baseball players doing baseball player things. Uh, <laughs> I want to see more stolen bases and triples and 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 uh, diving catches in the outfield and amazing plays by the shortstop. You know, I made this point a few times, but uh, I don't know if Ozzie Smith, if if a, if a if a modern Ozzie Smith would even be Ozzie Smith, because he would be making so many fewer plays. I'm not sure people would notice how great he was. Um, he certainly wouldn't be as famous because even if we noticed, we wouldn't notice as often. So um, I just want to see more of all those things. And the way to do that is it, there's not a simple solution, which is what so this is my, my cop out. Why I don't have just one rule change. What you've got, the, the only way you can get more batted balls in play is to mess around with the height of the mound maybe the distance of the the pitching rubber from the plate. I'm not sure about that one, but certainly the height of the mound, um, the shape of the strike zone is probably something you'd want to look at. Uh, the elasticity or the dynamics of the baseball is something you want to look at. There are, it would not be terribly difficult for some really smart people to get together and figure out a way to achieve that goal. The problem is you need buy-in from all the different parties. And right now that just doesn't exist. So I want to talk a little bit about um, how we are also speaking with the commissioner of the West coast league. I want to know what a day in the life having that position is like, because that just <laughs> seems like, um, I mean, the West coast league itself is a very, very cool thing. And I don't think um, probably the Midwest is, is probably as informed about that league as we should be. But can you just tell us a little bit about that, our listeners and, and what, what exactly the league is and, and how you guys operate? Sure. Well, we are a collegiate summer league and we operate, I mean, every league is a little different, uh, but I think most people have heard of the Cape Cod league, which is the, has the best players. Uh, there's a whole movie about the Cape Cod league, which I've never seen, but, uh, uh, many baseball fans have seen it. I think it's called, is it Summer Catch? Is that right? Is, is, do, do you know? Oh, I think it oh. is actually. And I um the only reason I know about this is if I remember correctly, when that movie came out, one of my former students was playing in the Cape Cod League. And I was, I was so impressed with the fact that <laughs> he was playing in this <laughs> league. There was a movie. I'm, I'm going to look this up. 
Yes, uh, it's Summer it, Catch. It was in 2001. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. Yep. It was, yeah, I, I it can't believe it was that long ago. Freddie Prince Jr. I believe was the was the the lead actor. And um, yes. yes, I mean it. My understanding is it's not a great, perhaps not even a good movie, but it's been around long enough, and it's been shown on MLB Network enough times that probably most of your most of the listeners have have seen it. Um, this is a pretty that, good cast. This is a pretty good cast yeah. for a movie that we don't know about. This is this is crazy. I, I'm going to watch this. This looks great. So who else is in it? So there's Jessica Biel is in it. Um, yes. Matthew Lillard, uh, Wilmer Valderrama, Fred Ward, Brian Dennelly, um, Bruce Davidson. I mean, this there's some pretty decent people in this. Brittany Murphy. I saw, I assume that's, uh, was that Brian Dennehy? I, I saw him yes. in Death of a Salesman. He is one of the all-time great American actors. So, yes, that sounds like quite the cast. Uh, I, I should probably see it just for the sake of completion. Um, I've seen most baseball movies. But uh, so the, the, the Cape Cod League everyone's heard about. Um, in the Midwest, upper Midwest in particular, everyone knows about the Northwoods League. They have about a million teams. So it's the same basic <laughs> model. Uh, we, get ki- we get kids who, uh, these days, and this wasn't true maybe 30, 40 years ago. Well, it probably was, but in a different form. In the summertime, college baseball players, most of them, especially if they have professional aspirations, they want to play more baseball. And the collegiate summer leagues have sort of sprung up to, to fill that need. There have always been places for, for, for college kids to play in the summer, usually semi-pro leagues. Um, maybe that's the wrong word, but there have always been summer leagues everywhere where people could play. This is just sort of a kicks it up a notch with more organization, maybe a higher quality of play. Uh, in our league, uh, our teams are spread so far apart. We have, team, we have a team up in Kelowna, British Columbia, which is pretty far north of the border. And then we have a team in Central Oregon and a team in Corvallis, Oregon. So you're talking about not this doesn't happen often, fortunately, but you're talking about 10, 11, 12 hour bus rides, uh, which is very much, at least historically, like a professional experience. Um, So that's what the league is about. We have 12 teams, um, 54 game season, and uh, uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. It, it is. Uh, it's sort of that pure baseball experience that a lot of people miss. It, it's great when you can go to a ballpark for get in the get in the gate for six or eight dollars and uh, for, on a perfect summer evening, especially in the Northwest where we have so many of them. Okay, so along that same line, something that's very near and dear to us here at Cup of Cubby Blue is women in baseball for obvious reasons. So in the West Coast League, you all had a woman executive that won executive of the year in 2013, Holly Jones. And then in 2017, you had a young 19-year-old gal, Claire Eccles, I think I'm saying that correctly, uh, knuckleball thrower that played for ironically the same team that Holly was um, the GM of. Um, Lots of women there that, you know, I could, you could find just real easily, but now, you know, you're starting to see more women in the majors. Like the Cubs just hired Rachel Folden, who she's expected to be a a difference maker this year with uh, the pitching lab that they have um, and the hitting lab that they have. So what are, are there any women that have stood out to you in, 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 in your studies and what you've been doing recently that we should keep an eye out for that will be up and coming in baseball? Well, Honestly, I don't know what their aspirations are, but two of our, trying to think how to phrase this, two of our more successful uh, over the last three, four years 
have been the Corvallis Knights, who win the championship literally every year, and the Bellingham Bells, who are just a top-notch organization. Uh, they had, for them, a rough 2019, but were outstanding in 2018. Both of those teams um, have women as their general managers. And not just that, everybody in the league knows how talented both of them are. So uh, I, I think it's a good story that people should be paying attention to, that our league has two women running teams uh, and doing great jobs. But there's a part of me that doesn't quite get it. And by that, I mean, I feel like there, there's when I read stories sometimes, it's almost as if the person telling the story or mentioning the story is surprised. And that probably isn't fair, but it just seems so natural to me or unsurprising that the Knights would, 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 there would be a woman running the Corvallis Knights and they would be successful. Um, I'm almost, there's a part of me, it's almost like, well, of course she's great at her job. Uh, so uh, I'm maybe not the best messenger because I, I don't find any of it surprising. But certainly I think that our teams have, generally speaking, uh, done a pretty good job on when it comes to providing opportunities uh, that might not be there elsewhere. Um, I think we need to we we need to do better. I would love for us, for example, to to um, to have a, a woman umpiring our games, and I've expressed that to our supervisor, and and I think he he shares that that sentiment. Whether or not it works out or not this se- next season, I don't know, but uh, I think we all recognize that it's a would be a great idea. I would love to see uh, more women in our front offices. Um, hopefully, one on the field again someday certainly on the field umpiring um so sure we're, we're all for it it's it's one of the things that as commissioner your you, one's intentions can be the best but uh, really i have l- almost zero power and that's one of the dirty little secrets of this job um aside from levying fines and suspensions uh, when uh, players or coaches are ejected from from games um it it's it's all about gaining some consensus among among the people who own the teams um and that's that's always a tricky thing and you can only push so many things at once um my big initiative uh, over my first year or so as commissioner has been to try to impress upon everyone the um the importance of technology in the game these days and we've made some strides with trackman and half our ballparks and various other things but uh there's there are always three or four or five things that I would love to do. And I've got to figure out which one or two um, uh, are the best uh, can best be served by my time and energy. That's really interesting that you are working so hard on getting technology and resources to a collegiate summer league. I think that that's so important for players and their development to understand the types of metrics and tools that they're going to have at their disposal, hopefully later when they're playing for bigger teams. Um, well, and the thing is, a lot of them nowadays have their 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 schools, their colleges have these things in place. So it becomes more and more important for us to be doing these things. We the coaches, their their college coaches, are going to be less excited about sending them to us if they're essentially downgrading their experience when they when they come to our league because we don't have the tools they have, which is why we're trying to get those tools. TrackMan being one of them, and again, there are others. Uh, but so many of the Division One schools, in particular, 
have TrackMan, they have Rapsodo, all the latest and greatest. Um, those programs are already doing these things. So we need to ultimately create an environment that is the same as what they came from last week when they were back at school. Absolutely. Um, we are running a little bit low on time, which is unfortunate because, Rob, I really feel like we could talk with you about baseball all the time, and I hope you will come back someday. Um, but I want to close it out with a couple of just really basic, quick questions. Um, what's your favorite team and what's your favorite park? Well, I don't really have a favorite team anymore. I grew up as a Royals fan. The Royals turned me into a an obsessive baseball fan. So there's always a soft spot in my heart for them, but it sort of went away about... 15 years ago as they continued to do things that I thought were stupid. Now, maybe they weren't, but they seemed to me stupid at the time. And ultimately between that and no longer living anywhere near Kansas city, it just sort of fell away. So I wasn't really able to enjoy their world series championship a couple of years ago, as much as I wish I could have. Um, uh, now I tend to pull for whichever team is wearing the prettier uniform if I'm watching on TV. So uh, pretty, pretty superficial. My favorite ballpark uh, I, I really love, I always separate these because I really can't even compare the old ballparks to the newer ballparks. Granted, there are only a couple of the old ones left. Uh, I, I love Fenway Park, all the nooks and crannies and idiosyncr- idiosyncratic things about it. Um, and Wrigley's great too. Uh, I just spent a lot more time in Fenway. Uh, than than Wrigley, but uh, I, I just adore those. Among the newer ones, um, I'm a big fan of of Coors Field because of uh, the, where it's set in the neighborhood. It just sort of fits in my mind seamlessly, and it's also a great ballpark for just walking around. Uh, so, and not to mention, they have the the best skies uh, at night uh, of, with the mountains and the clouds and the oranges and the yellows. And it's just it's in, it's an incredible place to see a game when the weather's nice. So I guess I guess that's my my long-winded answer. Uh, that's awesome. By the way, the other great thing about Coors Field, which is near and dear to my heart, is that it's the only ballpark I know of in America that serves green chili. <laughs> is the state food of New Mexico, and if you are not a New Mexican, you don't like. I'm sure you don't get this, but you have to get green chili wherever you know. You it's are funny. I, 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 I love. New Mexican red chili, but I've never been a fan of the green. It's too spicy for me. But oh my gosh, red chili, red hatch chili is might be my single favorite food on the planet. Oh my God, you are speaking my language. And I don't think we could possibly have a better note to close it out on than a tribute to green and red chili. So I'm just going to thank Rob one more time for joining us. Rob, this was great. Uh, we had an awesome time talking to you here on Cup oh, of Cutting Blue. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And as always, if you are looking to find any of us, you can find us on Twitter. Rob, what's your handle on Twitter? R-O-B-N-E-Y-E-R. Got an easy one. Awesome. And then you can find me at BCB underscore Sarah. You can find Andy at B-R-Y-Z underscore Blue. You can find both of us at Cup of Cubby Blue. And we will be back next week talking about the Cubs, who we still very much miss. We love you, Cubs. Bye. (laughs)